Thank you for listening to episode 99 of the 200 Churches Podcast. Our society is becoming more and more dysfunctional. And the difficulties that a pastor and his, his spouse or her spouse faces in ministry today, I think we were not prepared for in seminary. And so for you to say, well, the person who goes across the water is the more spiritual because it's darker over there and the sacrifice is greater, is not necessarily true. It's very dark here in the United States. And the sacrifices that a pastoral couple make to minister in the United States in this context today are very, very difficult decisions for them to make. And it's a very intense sacrificial lifestyle that they are often called to live. Thank you for listening to the 200 Churches Podcast, which is all about pastors of small churches. If you are a small church pastor or leader, this podcast is for you. Each and every Wednesday, we deliver another episode specifically designed to bring ministry encouragement to pastors of small churches. Now here are two guys who serve and lead in a 200 church. The ACDC of ministry podcasts, Jeff and Johnny. This is the 200 Churches Podcast. I am Johnny Craig, and as, well, not as always, actually. No, I'm not always here. As usual. My name is Jeff Katie. <laughs> Usually it is. You know, we've been doing that. This is episode 99, which 99, first of all, baby. adios double digits. Double nuevos. It was fun knowing you not. That's right. <laughs> Anyways. You know, I didn't do the cool thing either. We didn't start with episode 001. That's true. Assuming we get passed into the hundreds. We had no idea. You know what we're going to have to do now? We're just going to have to write like 100. This is actually like Y2K, and we don't know if this podcast is going to be able to roll over into three <laughs> yeah, digits. Right. This that's might not right. be here next week. Well, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> I just said 99 episodes. We've only done a handful, not with each other. Were you alive in Y2K? That's nice. Yeah. Okay. I'm not 15, so yes. <laughs> I mean, I actually remember. I remember. Y2K. No, I remember Y2K. Everybody was, was a, worried. There was a fire on our church property on Y2K. Was it really? Yeah. 4 a.m. after I'd freak midnight. Out a little bit. Yeah. The house that we used to live in, that we moved out of to move into another house, the house that we used to live in had a had a chimney fire. Whoa. Yeah. That's the, the, the thing didn't burn down or anything. Nobody got hurt. No, I remember. But I remember crazy. turning my Windows ninety eight computer to the year two thousand to see if it would work. Did it work? It did. Yeah, it worked fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why NASA or oh, whatever. Oh well, so we, we better not. We better not relive Y two K. Anyways, you, I think we'll be able to roll over. You know, in our fellowship hall, there is a closet. In that closet, there is a hot water heater, and on the hot side of the hot water heater, it says. Y2K compliant. Shut up. It does not. I'll show you after we're done recording. I want to take a picture and put it on this post. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> That's amazing. That's funny. I love yeah. it. All that to say, we've only done a handful of episodes not with each other, and this is one of them. Yeah, you were gone that particular day, and I was here with a missionary who will remain unnamed in his lo- lo- yeah, lo- locution. His location will remain a mystery. And this is our second episode. Yes, we had him on a little a little yeah. while back. Uh, words from a seasoned leader. So this would be yeah. seasoned leader part two. He, he, look, legit cool guy. If you listen to the first episode, you already know. I don't need to talk him up. But like he was a small church pastor and and has been a missionary. Like he's done a lot of different stuff. So right. he's a very legit guy and has great things to say. So great that we're going to get right to them. Yeah, well, let, I should stop talking. Let's let him do the talking. And here I am with the mystery missionary. 
for the second time on the 200 Churches podcast, we have pastor, missionary, and have you written anything? No, I have not. Uh, and non-authored. <laughs> Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you. Hey, you're back in Johnny's chair, and Johnny's not around. Ooh, what an amazing privilege. You know, really, I'm, I'm auditioning some replacements, <laughs> but I'm not telling them that. So I don't think he has to be threatened. Well, I don't know. I like see. I like to keep Johnny on edge. Okay. I don't. I don't ever want him to get overly secure <laughs> because his head's too big, is it, to begin with? Right. So it's good to have you back on the podcast. You were a pastor for how many years? I have been in pastoral ministry for close to twenty-five years. That's a long time. Yes, it is. You've tried church planning. Did a church plant for two years. I served overseas two different times in two different countries for about eight years, worked at a Christian college for six years. You've been a solo pastor? I have been a solo pastor in the small church plant. I've worked in a staff situation with a senior pastor in a church of somewhere around 150. I've been a church pastor in a, meg- in a multi-staff situation, a church of about 500, and then international work in different co- contexts overseas. Well, wow, you're a real weirdo, you know that? I am. I'm a weirdo, <laughs> yes. You've been involved in so many of the things that our listeners are involved in, and the, the good thing is that you're one of us. Amen. Right? You're one of us. And I think that's what we try to do with the podcast, is we, 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 we all want to be one of us, and we want to talk together about this wonderful yet challenging thing called small church ministry. Right. Um, we talked the last time, we talked about generational conflicts in the church the last time you were on. The last time you were on, we talked about, uh, you challenged us to pray as pastors with our spouses. And I don't think you said it at the time, but my sense was that when we start praying with our spouses on a regular basis, it kind of opens up a new dimension of spirituality for us. Would you say that's true? I would say that definitely, and it takes your relationship as husband and wife to a deeper level because you're not just communicating head-to-head or even physically body-to-body. You're communicating heart-to-heart, and you're doing it before the throne, and what an amazing privilege that is to do that together. So that's really interesting because we, you know, we're talking about pastoral ministry, and yet you just took what you described out of pastoral ministry doesn't matter whether we're a pastor. It's just we are married. We have a husband or a wife, and whether or not we pray with our spouse, it, it that has an impact on our own spiritual well-being. Exactly, and I think that that's critical for us in pastoral ministries to realize that we are first and foremost a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a child of the king, and secondarily a pastor, a pastor's wife's a pastor's wife, because the people in our congregations are looking to us, and they are seeing us often as a role model, or maybe they've chosen not to view us as that any longer. But how we live our lives and how we live out the gospel in the context of marriage and family, I think, speaks much more strongly than many of our sermons do on Sunday morning. So our actions speak louder than words. I think you need both the actions and the words, but our actions prove that our words are valid and that they really do what we say they will do. Kind of like faith without works is exactly. dead. Exactly. 
Yeah, we should. I should put a sermon together on that sometime. I think that'd be a great one. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so in case some of our listeners did not hear you on the first time, you told a story about a guy who spoke and talked about his prayer life with his wife. Just tell that again for those who missed it the first time, because I think this was this was obviously a, a seminal moment in your life, both as a husband and as a Christian worker. Yes, we had been invited to become a part of what is called the College of Prayer in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was one of the modules of the College of Prayer that we were attending that had to do with pastors and wives and keeping the home fires burning. And this pastor stood up together with his wife on this occasion, and he was a well-known pastor and still is. And he confessed that for the first 10 years of his marriage, he could count on two fingers the number of days he had led his wife in prayer. And then he said, but for the last 15 years of my marriage, I can count on two fingers the number of times that I have not led my wife in prayer. And I was so convicted in my spirit by that. First, because it came from a pastor I really respected and thought, boy, this guy has arrived. Mm -hmm. And secondly, because he was just so transparent and broken and humble in the way he said it, that I knew I had to do something about that. And um, so I went back with my wife to the room where we were staying while we were at this college of prayer. And it was there in the room, I holding her hands and looking her eye to eye, I confessed my sin and I asked her forgiveness. And I said, with God as my witness from this day forward and with his help, I promise that I will lead you in prayer every day. And for the last, I don't know, however, 15, 20 years, I've been able to do that. Even if we're a distance away from each other, we do it by phone. And uh, it's been a very, very special time in our marriage. And I think it's helped to take our marriage uh, maybe even to a deeper level and maintain what we had been able to achieve in the years leading up to that time. When you, as you pray with your wife, have there been seasons where you you you're worried that you're just kind of going through the motions or that you're just praying about the same things all the time and you want to freshen it up some or you want to because when we pray we don't want to be plastic right we don't want to just be reciting rote meaningless things i mean that's to me that's one of the things that i'm always challenged with when i pray i want to be authentic i want to be real have you gone through those seasons? Oh, definitely. I think that anybody who's worth their weight in prayer and honest will say that they've gone through those kinds of seasons. That's just a part of what it means to begin to develop a prayer life and learn how to pray together. But for those seasons that have been like that, there have also been those seasons where there's been prayer that's been fresh and we really felt like we were together before the throne of God. We knew that God was hearing and we knew that God was answering. But the together time was just so, so special because we knew that it was the same Savior we were addressing. We knew that it was the same need that had drawn us together before him in prayer. And there was that sense of confidence that because we had together come on this particular matter before him, that somehow we had an audience with him and that God was going to do something. We didn't know when but we knew he was going to do something. I felt like when you shared that the last time you were on the podcast, that was so important. And so maybe you've heard it the second time. And I'm wondering if you've heard it the second time, did it have any effect on you the first time? And if it didn't, does it 
speak to you at all this time because uh, we learn from others. We're inspired in, in, in moments. You know, God uses others to inspire us and to change us. I wonder, that pastor probably doesn't know, or or did you tell him? I think I did tell him after the fact, because we are friends, and okay. um, I've been involved in other ministries years later with him that uh, involved prayer mobilization. So he is aware of that, yes. That's cool. And um, it would be nice if in 10 years somebody could say the same thing because of hearing your story. I mean, that's that's how it works. To God be the glory. That would be wonderful. Yeah. So uh, that's our, that's a little bit of our challenge as we begin the podcast that we were supposed to be talking about, missionaries and pastors. You know, there's some stereotypes there. There are There's some competition there, I think, sometimes between missionaries and pastors. Who are the most holy? Who are the most faithful? Who will be in the front of the line in heaven? You know, who do people respect more? All that kind of that kind of junk. Yeah, we don't really want to waste much time on that because it's none of it's really matters. I I would agree, and I think that one of the things that we have tried to do on this series of tours that we've been on in the last uh, eight to ten months is to really highlight that very fact that just because someone goes to another country of the world and is involved cross culturally and learning another language and engaging people in that particular cultural context does not mean in any way that they are more spiritual than someone who is still in the States. It really has a lot to do with what is the calling of God upon your life. And wherever God calls you, bloom where you're planted. If that means here, then you do what God wants you to do here. If that means there, do what God wants you to do there. And I think most of us who have been involved in ministry in the United States for many years, and you don't need to have many years uh, under your belt of ministry to be able to identify with this, I think we would say that our society is becoming more and more dysfunctional. And the difficulties that a pastor and his, his spouse or her spouse faces in ministry today, I think we were not prepared for in seminary. And so for you to say, well, the person who goes across the water is the more spiritual because it's darker over there and the sacrifice is greater is not necessarily true. It's very dark here in the United States. And the sacrifices that a pastoral couple make to minister in the United States in this context today are very, very difficult decisions for them to make. And it's a very intense sacrificial lifestyle that they are often called to live. So I think that the ground is still all level at the foot of the cross. And the ministries that we are engaged in, whether overseas or in the United States, are ministries where we've got to eliminate this us versus them mindset. We are in this together. We are a team. We are part of the kingdom of God to advance the cause of Christ. And until we get rid of this this bifurcation, until we separate this thing or remove this barrier that seems to exist between the spiritual and the unspiritual, the overseas minister of the gospel and the stateside minister of the gospel, I don't think it's going to help any of us because the overseas individual who has been sent out by someone in the States is only going to be as effective as the stateside ministry often is. And if we aren't in this together and not seeing ourselves as in competition, but complementing one another, then we're really missing out on, I think, a lot of what God wants to do to advance his kingdom here in this country and around the world. 
So you've spent two terms overseas as a missionary. I have. One when you were a little younger. Yes. And one now that you're just a little older. Yes, thank you. You're so gracious. (laughs) In the first term that you spent, you spent in South Korea. Uh, Was that before or after you had that church planning experience? The experience in South Korea was just after we had the church planting experience. Okay. So you were in the role of a pastor and then a missionary and then a pastor and now more recently a missionary. Correct. So when you went to Korea, when you went to the Republic of um, what are some things that missionaries experience that pastors wouldn't really understand? What are some things that we need to be more thoughtful about with missionaries in that initial you get over there and what happens? I think that for a pastor to understand the life of an overseas worker, imagine yourself just being relocated from the church you're presently in to another church in a new environment that you have no knowledge of and where you've got to meet people, you've got to understand the people, and you've got to understand how to, where to shop, where to get items that you need to repair the house. You've got to go through all of these things for the very first time. And it's not that much different in another cultural context, except you've got the language barrier oftentimes. And so I think too often we we super spiritualize this ministry that those who are called international workers or missionaries are engaged in, and we fail to realize that they are people just like us, and they have the same kinds of struggles and issues before them as we do, the same kinds of needs, the same kinds of longings, the same kinds of temptations, and we've got to realize that it's... It's that we are in a fallen world, and that fallenness is going to impact us wherever we are, and we need to be sensitive to that, and we need to be encouraging each other and praying for each other, not holding each other suspect or holding one up on a pedestal above another. It's just that's not the way it works. Uh, We're in this together. It's a team effort. Now, you've done local church ministry in the Mm -hmm. States and and overseas. Uh, How are they different? How was it different when you were in Now, I don't know, were you involved in local church ministry there as well, or was it more of a pastoral oversight of other workers? We, in the country um, where we served in North and Central Asia, we did pastor the international church in the capital city. And the ministry there was similar in terms of needs being presented in a congregational context and ministry needs that you needed to engage in if you were going to meet the uh, the needs of your people. But we also had the multicultural aspect that many pastors in small churches in communities that do not have a lot of ethnic mix in them may not experience. For instance, in the years that we served in this capital city, we we had people from 42 nations come through, and we frequently had several languages that were being spoken in different contexts in the service. Though I preached in English and our worship songs were in English, there were pockets of people speaking different languages while we were um, having the service that we held. And so um, in that sense, that, that dynamic was different. It gave me kind of a sense of what it's going to be like around his throne on that day when people mm-hmm. from every tongue and tribe and nation and, and people group will be represented. So that dynamic was very, very fun and refreshing. It had its challenges because of language, 
but it was a very special privilege for us to be there. But when it came to actual ministry, ministry in that context is still finding people who will do the job, who will do it faithfully, people who are teachable, who are reliable, and uh, who will seek to live the life of Christ before those that they are investing their lives in and trying to make sure that we cover those bases and that um, when a visitor comes in, they are welcomed and they know that we are different and that we really genuinely care for them and we're glad they came. So a lot of those things are the same or similar, but you just need to be sensitive to adjustments because of the culture and the language issues that you're also facing at that time. As local church pastors, we're going to have a missions week coming up. And let's say we've got two or three missionary couples that we're planning on having in our church. What are the types of things that those couples need from us in, let's say, the two months prior to arriving at the church? Now, I'm saying this with all candor, letting our listeners know that I'm not real good at this part. In fact, once the missionaries show up, I'm great. I hug them. I honor them, respect them. I'm really good with them. But the, the, the months previous, I'll get an email or two, and uh, I work on kind of a shortened preparation time. And so you can, you can maybe enlighten me a little bit here. Help the missionaries that will come next year to get better treatment maybe than what you had. <laughs> so what do, what do missionary couples need those well, two think, months prior? I think because they are in the process of planning and because they want to be fresh and they want to be relevant, they want to be able to know that what they are presenting to their audience is relevant for that particular mix, that age mix, that gender mix, whatever the case might be. They need to know that um, this is what you're going to be presenting. This is the group you're going to be presenting to. This is the amount of time that you're going to have to present it. Those kinds of pieces of information are very helpful for the missionary, the missionary couple, as they are preparing for their time. Because once they get on tour, they are often going from church to church, and it's bang, bang, bang. And there isn't a whole lot of time to do the kind of preparation that really reflects itself in quality. They can do some last-minute prep time, but for research and finding somebody who's technologically gifted to help them with certain pieces that involve technology, they really can't do that now because the tour has already got underway. Well, we have often gotten missionaries that are coming, and we're the last church on the tour. Now, for those of you who don't know, we're in a denomination where missionaries come back on their home assignment, and then they go out on what they call a missions tour to five or six or sometimes eight different churches in so many weeks. And so we usually, we have often been the last church in a six-church trip or whatever. And, and I just figured, hey, they're, they're all practiced up. You know, they've, they've been to five churches. I don't, you know, what, what, else do they, what else do we need? But you're saying that before they even leave on tour, it would be good for them to know, okay, what are we dealing with here? Because they may see that, okay, they're going to be speaking to teenagers at this church, okay, and they're going to be speaking to teenagers at two other churches. They've got a presentation for all three churches. But maybe you've we've got something at our church that isn't really, let's say we're going to do a men's event and we're going to do a cookout and a barbecue, which we're going to do, and you're going to be there, but you're probably, even as we... Why are you looking at me like that, Jack? Even, <laughs> even as we're talking about it, wondering, what is my role going to be at this men's event? Yeah. So you're saying uh, before you even leave, it would be good to know 
exactly what types of presentations. That really is helpful. And even if you are the last church on the tour and they should be very polished in their presentations, I think that you would find many international workers in different denominational contexts do want to do their best to stay fresh. And they want them to make sure that their material comes across as a fresh presentation. And so that means that if your particular church has a unique focus, for instance, I was at a church recently where they wanted to reach out to the millennials and they asked if I would feel comfortable if, uh, if I had a presentation, they were calling the presentation missions on tap and they met at the beer barrel in that community. And I said, I'd love to be there because I want to be where the millennials are. And I, I didn't have anything to drink. I had a Sprite, but I was there to be able to share with them my story and how it was in that same tavern context that God rescued me. Not that people need to be rescued if they're going there to have a yeah, drink. That was, that, was a, that was a close one, Jack. But that's where God <laughs> rescued me because I was looking for answers, and I was looking for something or someone to fill the void in my life, and that's what I was using to fill that, and it was just numbing the pain for a short season. So it was a privilege for me to be able to be there with the 20, 25, 30 young people sitting out there and just sharing our stories and seeing how Jesus wanted to intersect my life with theirs and show them that he can make a difference in their lives. Pastor, what would your board say if you said you wanted to have a missions on tap night down at the local pub? (sighs) There's so many different directions we could go in with that statement right (laughs) Yeah, and I'm I'm not advocating that, but I'm saying that this was a church that was communicating with me, and they said, this is what we're thinking of doing. Yeah, They didn't schedule it until they said, would you be okay with that if it was something you feel, you'll feel uncomfortable about right. or feel like you just couldn't do that? They were willing to nix it. But I said, no, I would love to be able to do that, and I want to honor you for your willingness to even risk in a risky fashion think outside the box in this area and everything was done in a very god honoring manner and i think the lord jesus was exalted just by the conversations that took place around the tables that is so cool now i'm going to ask you a question and you don't have to answer it to me but i want you to answer it to all of those other pastors who are listening to us not because it's not going to really apply to me. But what are some things that pastors do that are not helpful? Like, are there any like common things that a lot of pastors just do this in their interaction or their, their, their work with a missionary that it's just not helpful, whether it's during a missions conference or it's something maybe that a pastor does when they visit on the mission field? What are some things, if you could just kind of whisper in the ear of some pastors of smaller churches, what would you tell, what do you think they need to hear from a missionary? I think that uh, a missionary needs to know that uh, the pastor is genuine. Uh, he doesn't need to put on a front for the missionary to try to impress him. And hopefully the missionary is not trying to put on a front to impress the pastor. And it is helpful to know that he really values them. Even as I, as an international worker, want to, the pastor to know that I really value him and value in the sense that you give them time. 
you don't relegate them to just a missions committee and you never even see them during the whole week that they're there. That does not speak very favorably to me as an international worker. Uh, I have been a pastor and I, I took issues with that uh, as a former pastor when a pastor would do that with me because that's a part of what we're, we're in this together. We're in this to celebrate and to affirm and to support one another's ministries if it's seeking to advance the kingdom. So I think that a pastor needs to, he needs to be real with this international worker. I think he needs to get enough time with him or her or with them as a couple to really find out where their ministry strengths are because some folks are incredibly effective on the mission field in the kind of work that they're doing, but they are not the most successful or effective pulpit speakers. And so how can I best craft their time with us so that I can position them based on their strengths and minister to our congregation through them based on their strengths, not put them in a pre-programmed mode that has often been the case. Well, well, we're giving him this time and giving her this time. That may not even be where their areas of strength are. So I think communication, again, is critical. And even if the pastor relegate or delegates that to his committee, for an international worker to know that the pastor is on the same page with them and that he is aware of what's going on and that he's prayerful and watchful and there to encourage as he, in whatever way he can, uh, that does speak volumes. And we have found that to be pretty consistently true of the churches that we've been in. They've been very good about doing that. So you you transitioned pretty smoothly in there, and you, you almost lost me there for a second. But you're talking about a missions committee using the same template every year for their missions week and having the the missionary do the same thing every year, no matter who the missionary is. So the missionary might be a great detail person or a poor one, a great public speaker or a poor one, you know, outgoing or reserved, uh, uh, maybe good with children or not, you know, good with students or not. But it doesn't matter because at Church X, uh, they always have the missionary go this route with their missions week. So this means, pastors, that we have to be more creative and we also have to be more preparatory in figuring out who the missionary is, what their giftedness is, and how they're, how they're wired, and then determine how we're going to structure our missions week. So what we've done, Jack, in the last 10 years is we've tried to have less large group gatherings and more small group gatherings because normally that's going to be good for an outgoing person or a non-outgoing missionary. So the person who's a great missionary but a poor public speaker in America can come back and, and work you know, one-on-one and in small groups, and we can get a flavor of, of what's going on with that missionary. So I think that's challenging for us as pastors and mission boards, and it's informative to know that we really do need to maybe figure out who's coming so that we can determine how best to use them. I would fully agree, Jeff. And I think one of the reasons why it may be challenging is that local churches have busy schedules and they've got their own strategies for reaching their community. And so now when an international worker is invited to come for a week or part of a week, that's on top of already existing schedules and busy work that is theirs just by virtue of the kind of ministry that they're doing. And so I think that sometimes 
there is that sense in which the international worker is is a hindrance. That's the perception. He or she is hindering the ministry of the local church uh, because it's disrupting our schedule. It's disrupting my preaching schedule, whatever the case might be. And I think there has to be a paradigm shift if that is the case, because it shouldn't be a disruption. There should be an enhancement of ministry as the cause of Christ extends beyond our community to a needy world and to a portion of that world that this particular international worker is representing. And somehow or other, to be able to work that together with pastor and international worker so that it's like a seamless page and it's all parts of a whole that we are part of a work that extends to and beyond our city to another region of the world and that other region of the world can express a a definite and vested interest in what's happening in your city because we're communicating and we're really in this together looking at how we can benefit one another's ministries and ministry effectiveness so there have been times at some churches perhaps where you felt like you were kind of disrupting what they're doing in their program maybe a little bit from the pastor yes there have been okay and in in your heart is to work arm in arm hand in hand with with the pastor to accomplish ministry with him the same coin maybe just the other side yes okay see now that's good now this wouldn't be the first time that i have grown while actually talking on the podcast so our listeners are used to this but for for me that's that is that is really good to know that i need to be as welcoming and engaged ahead of time as i am when they show up because i feel like probably if i had to be honest in the past as i've worked with missionaries i have compensated for my lack of engagement prior to their arrival by being extremely engaged and kind and loving and respectful while they're here. So when they leave, they had such a good time, they don't remember that I never called them or responded (laughs) to their emails ahead of time. So that's something that I'm going to work on better. Uh, And I say this every year uh, to myself. I think, man, we had great missionaries this year. I wish I would have gotten to know them better ahead of time and then maybe communicated who they were better to our people yeah. before they before they showed up. So if you're listening, that's free. You can learn off of my humiliation. <laughs> but that's that's really good to know. Well, I think we're all growing. Hopefully we're all in a learning mode and we can learn from one another and grow through ministry experience so that we can become more effective in years to come. Teachable. Amen. Okay, so as we wrap this up, is there anything else that you think small church pastors need to hear regarding their interaction with missionaries. Either maybe they're going to go and they're going to visit a missionary, they're going to take a, a, a short-term group with them, or they have to maybe just in the in the uh, week-to-week ongoing communication and support, uh, personal support, you know, through communication and encouragement of a missionary that we that we may financially support. Anything you think we could uh, benefit from? I think that we live in a world that's becoming more and more shrunken and smaller in many ways, and we've got access to different countries of the world now that we never had before. My challenge would be that every pastor, small church or otherwise, make at least one trip overseas and visit another culture or context, expose themselves to life in a different culture, 
even if they're only there for a week or two weeks, it would change their whole worldview. They would never view ministry in their own country in the same way again. I think it would enhance that ministry. I think it would give them a new appreciation for missionaries who come to their their churches for ministry. It would be able to help them cast a worldview for their congregation that begins in their Jerusalem but extends beyond that to their Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. They will never recover from it. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. I think it would be a very good investment for the pastor, very good investment for the church to send their pastor and wife or pastor and husband, whatever the context is, to another country of the world to see firsthand what God is doing in that region and to bring back and tell their people what they've seen. That's a great suggestion. So, Pastor, is that suggestion for you? You know, maybe you're listening to this. You're saying, oh, that's me. That's me. I need to do that. Well, you've just gotten permission from a longtime pastor and missionary. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you can do it again sometime. Thanks again. Blessings. That was a great conversation that I had with uh, John Smith. And sorry you weren't there, Johnny, but you did get to meet him, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah. and so Very nice guy. In fact, the following Sunday I missed because it was the Sunday of my son's accident. Yep. And uh, you were there, and you and John led the service yes. that day. That's right. So, Johnny, we've we got a new year ahead of us. We've got some new things coming yeah. up. You and I have uh, done some brainstorming, and we've done some had some conversations about, you know, what's in the future of 200 churches. Yeah. But really there's... It's not so much, you know, what are we planning to do, but it's it's the motivation that you and I have that we believe we also share with guys like Carl Vaders and, and Dave yeah. Jacobs, a motivation to reach out to small church pastors. Yeah, and it, the amazing thing, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, the amazing thing is seeing how God has used us sitting around in the 200 Churches studio <laughs> uh, recording these podcasts to encourage and kind of inspire some small church pastors. And I and I say God because I don't think that you and I have any sort of magic potion for this, but it's been successful. We're getting your emails, we're getting your comments, and we know that this podcast is helpful for small church pastors, and we want it to be helpful for more and more and more. We believe in this product, maybe I should say. Uh, and, and so we want your help to continue to spread the message. Well, like we said last week, we just tried something. Right, we yeah. tried this out, yeah, and we we failed the very first time we did it. We did a whole podcast <laughs> we episode, and we never hit record, <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't quit. So we right. just tried it, and and when we try things, then sometimes God uses them, yeah. But but here's here's what motivates me: we've only reached maybe a thousand pastors, okay, right. that that have connected with us, that that know what we're doing, that listen to the podcast that maybe are bumping around the our website mm-hmm. and we have heard from them uh, the difference that the ministry has made in their lives just being connected to other people that are talking about the awesomeness of a small church yeah. you know the awesomeness that can be had in and happen in a small church ministry we've seen how it has changed the lives of these small church pastors both men and women yeah from all different denominations oh yeah now here's here's what i'm thinking about okay so there's a, a, about, about a thousand maybe right maybe a, almost a thousand yeah there's only like 300 and oh 20 something thousand more out there <laughs> in america just in america now not even around the world yeah only 89% only 89% 
of our listens come from the United States, which means 11% of our listens come from outside of our country. I would, that's surprising to All me. Right? There's 330-something thousand pastors of small churches in America. Wow. There's a lot of men and a lot of women out there who are discouraged who are beaten down, yeah. who we have not reached yet. Yeah. So we say that to you so that as we go into this coming year and as you see new things, um, those new things are to both encourage you more and equip you more as a small church pastor, but also to reach out maybe to, so that you will share those things with other pastors that you know, because we don't know them. But between right. all of us, hopefully we all know some small percentage of all the small church pastors in America, right? and we can begin to encourage them. And we do it not just, Johnny, not just you and me, but we do it along with our partners and with our uh, oh, yeah. with, the, with our friends and yeah. people that uh, work with us. So We get by with a little help from our friends. Don't say the next part. Oh, I want to say it so <laughs> bad. I want to sing it, but I can't <laughs> sing, so I'm going to give it up. Oh, man. Episode 99, Jeff, end of an era. And, you know, this is with episode 00, this is actually our... Shut up, man. You're ruining the moment. You know, you know but, but but next week is our... <laughs> we get into the second hundred. Trip Didge. Yeah. So. Nobody says Trip Didge. No, not really. <laughs> you, you, you say it, though. So. I just did, yeah. Anyway, hey, thank you for listening today. It's always our pleasure that you would spend this time with us. And we hope that when you spend time with the 200 Churches podcast, you go away a lot more encouraged. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you've been encouraged and challenged by this episode of the 200 Churches podcast. We'll be back next Wednesday to provide you with more ministry encouragement as you pastor your 200 church. Until then, may God bless you as you lead and love your people.